Fuel your team with Total Coffee from Staples Business Advantage. Our comprehensive program offers no upfront cost brewers, installation, maintenance, and supplies. Plus our incredible selection of coffee and beverages, including our new Pick Me Up Provisions brand. We handle everything from finding the best brewer to providing ongoing service, all at no cost with your minimum monthly spend on breakroom products. Visit staplesadvantage.com slash totalcoffee to get started. This is an MSNBC special presentation. Sponsored by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. The National Day of Racial Healing Town Hall, live from Studio B in New Orleans. Here now is Joy Reid and Chris Hayes. healing, an event created six years ago by our sponsor, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. This special day is held every year on the day after the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And if you look around, you'll see that we're in this um, glorious space, incredible room. It's part of the Studio B, which is a set of former warehouses turned into an art experience by the artist Brandon B. Mike Odoms here in the Bywater neighborhood of the great city of New Orleans. Our colleague Tremaine Lee, who has been doing some reporting for this project, is here with us as well. And so is the Young Fellas Brass Band. for people of different backgrounds and cultures going back centuries. And so we want to acknowledge, thank, and honor the indigenous peoples for whom this part of the world has long been home, like the Chittimacha, the Choctaw, the Homa, dozens of others. And we're meeting like this in the round, literally. Uh, we're drawing on the indigenous practice of healing circles. The work that we're here to do tonight is for everybody, wherever you came from and wherever you're going. You are all part of this story. Now, you could not find a better spot on earth for our mission tonight to explore the harm that racism has done to our society and to consider how we might heal from it. Now, in a time when those questions feel so urgent for this country, just this week, another community is dealing with what appears to be a racially motivated attack on a college student. Stories like these have become all too common. Everywhere in the country, I mean, everywhere in the country. So please have a listen. The town of Southbury is now the latest to be targeted by white supremacist literature. Gay and racial slurs and words of anti-Semitism spray painted in white. Someone scribbled hateful, racist rhetoric on the exterior walls and roadway. The violent anti-black messages were scrawled with a marker inside a boy's restroom. Racist graffiti at school white supremacy code dangling over the highway. All of those incidents of hate taking place in this country, just in the month of December alone. It is starting to feel like we have reached a breaking point. The Congresswoman appeared at a white nationalist event on Friday. Sitting members of Congress openly aligning themselves with white supremacist leaders. 
This is an invasion of this country. We have a literal invasion of lawless masses flooding over our border from more than 160 countries. Members of the L.A. City Council caught an audio late last year using racist slurs. It feels like we're backsliding, and it is not just violent language. A woman from the Philippines recovering tonight from a vicious anti-Asian attack in Yonkers. The hostage situation at a synagogue in Colleyville last weekend was targeted terrorism at the Jewish community. Police believe the suspect traveled more than three hours from here to Buffalo to carry out the attack as an act of racially motivated violent extremism. The Justice Department naming racially motivated extremism as the biggest threat to our national security. Dozens of white supremacists marched through Boston today. Hate is on the rise in this country. And it is no longer just lurking in the shadows. What do we do now that racist extremists once again feel emboldened to march down our streets? What can we do to stand up to the hate? What can we do to heal? Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Joining us now are three women who have come face to face with the hate that is plaguing our nation. Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and creator of the 1619 Project, which will premiere as a docu-series on Hulu later this month. She's now Howard University's Night Chair in Race and Journalism. Also with us, Sharon Nazarian of the Anti-Defamation League, which fights racism and anti-Semitism globally. And Michelle, I'm sorry, Michelle Mi Jun Kim is the CEO of Awaken and the author of The Wake Up, Closing the Gap, between good intention and real change. So thank you all for joining us uh, for this round table part of the discussion. Um, and by the way, reading a prompt is harder than it looks. I just want to go ahead and say that. So I'm sorry that I botched if I botched any names. But I do want to start with you, Nicole, my friend. And, you know, I'm so glad that you're here because, you know, when South Africa did sort of a version of it, they tried to do it. They called it Truth and Reconciliation. And it turns out the truth part is as hard as the reconciliation <laughs> part for a lot of folks, right? Yes. I mean, um, there has been a resistance to what you have brought to the table, which is truth, and telling the truth about this country, which for a lot of people is more than they can bear. So I want you to just talk a little bit about what it's been like to experience being a truth teller in the way you've been with the 1619 Project and what you've received in return on a negative side. On the negative side, okay. Um, I mean, first, I just feel like 
to lay the table, we have to take stock of where we are, which is uh, the city that was the largest slave trading city in the United States. Um, in New Orleans, most cities, you would have one or two places where they would trade African people. Um, but in New Orleans, there were some 50 spots, right? And if you look at New Orleans today, um, half of black children in the city live in poverty compared to 5% of white children. So when we wanna talk about healing, yes, we, we have to talk about the truth, and then we have to talk about how do we stop the harm that's currently being done. Then we have to talk about repair and then we can get to healing. So let me just start that out first. Mm -hmm. um, so what we know is that the reason we don't want to talk about the truth is if we acknowledge what this country was actually built upon, if we acknowledge that the reason black Americans live in the circumstances we do is not because of our pathology, but because of a country that was erected literally on um, extracting wealth from us, um, then we have to do something about it. So the backlash that I have uh, experience, which, as you know, has been everything from uh, the former president of the United States to sitting senators to uh, governors trying to legislate against the project to, you know, personal threats, um, to me is probably my greatest honor, because what that means is uh, the truth makes powerful people in this country very scared, and I'm glad that they're scared. Michelle, mm -hmm. <laughs> we... Uh, we mentioned earlier this awful incident that happened in Indiana University where we don't have all of the details yet, but it appears to be uh, a racially motivated hate crime uh, directed at an Asian American. There is a really palpable sense in the reporting I've done, the folks I've talked to, Asian American folks, of like real visceral fear that something has changed or something feels more threatening in the atmosphere. How do you think about that moment right now, what its causes are, and how we talk about it in ways that um, are honest and, and sort of bridge past some of the uh, cliches? Yeah, thank you so much for reporting on the hate crime, because I think this is something that a lot of our community members are aware of in terms of the erasure that continues to happen around Asian American struggles. And I think we'd be doing uh, injustice to all of our community struggles if we failed to connect the dots back to the 1800s, right? This is not a new phenomenon where we are living in a state of oppression. I think that for so long, because we are immersed in the narrative of model minority myth, a lot of people think that Asian American and API communities at large are doing better than most. And I think that is such a harmful rhetoric that has invisibilized so much of the pain and oppression that so many Asian Americans have been experiencing, not only on the streets, but systemically, right? Whether it's undocumented Asians, Muslim Asians, black Asian Americans, you know, there are a whole plethora of Asian people who've been fighting against oppression in different ways. So I think it's an opportunity for us to broaden the scope of the conversation and not just talk about the anti-Asian hate crimes that are happening today, but also more broadly over the historical time period um, in terms of how we've been oppressed in different ways in different spheres. Yeah. And, you know, Sharon, I want to bring you into this conversation because, you know, the thing about American history is that there have been repetitive, repetitive traumas that have played out within many communities of color, right? And so you talk about the Jewish community, and you are a fascinating uh, woman. You are from Iran. You are Jewish. Um, and so you kind of are intersectionality embodied in a person, right? Um, but we've also seen, along with the attacks on Asian Americans, along with the continued anti-blackness, um, and particularly in education, in 
in wanting to resist learning about the things that have happened to people of color, there has also been the same kind of fight about the history of what happened to Jewish people. Um, there's been an erasure there, too, and a pushback. You know, when they're banning so-called critical race theory, they're also banning books about the Holocaust. And we've seen an uptick in attacks on Jewish people and Jewish symbols around the country. So talk a little bit about how that works and how I would love for all of you to jump in on talking about how do we make this a conversation across groups so that we can support yeah. one another. So first of all, thank you so much for having me here. I'm representing ADL, the oldest anti-hate organization in America. So when we were founded in 1913, our founders understood in order to hate, fight anti-Semitism and the defamation of the Jewish people, we need to also secure justice and fair treatment for all. So 1913, our founders knew that. And we knew that before the Holocaust. We knew that, that what is happening to American Jewry will be one that will affect all my, uh, marginalized communities. And we're all stuck in this together. So the anti-Semitic that we understand in America, and we as ADL measure through mechanisms that we have, we do anti-Semitic surveys of attitudes. We just released one for 2022, highest watermark in decades. We look at incidents of attacks, assault against Jews, highest watermark in decades. Again, we look at online hate, we measure that, and we see that Jews, LGBT, AAPI, those are the groups that are getting targeted online. That's what ADL does. We have the data shows that we are in a dire situation right now. And town halls like this are critical to bring this attention to all. So, you know, there, there's this sort of abstract sense and there's a political theory about how po politics would, would happen in America, right? That, that, that there was this emerging democratic majority and as the country grew increasingly diverse and, and less white, there would be this sort of coalition of groups. People talked about this, the Obama coalition, and you did see, right, Asian Americans voting uh, for Barack Obama, African Americans obviously in historic numbers, Jews as well. But like in reality, and especially if you're around city politics, right, in the Bronx where I grew up or New Orleans, like there's lots of beef. <laughs> like it's not like everyone's like, oh, well, we're all fighting the same enemy. It's like there's lots of beef. There's lots of beef in terms of how groups think about each other, the stereotypes they might have about each other. And I wonder like how you think about pluralism at this time when like the threat is very real. But there are also a lot of people trying to use pitting groups against each other as a crowbar, right? To sort of pry apart that solidarity and, and pry apart those sorts of coalitions. Uh, that's absolutely true. And we see it especially in New York where you have different communities with fear and fearing the other, right? So Jews on black, black on Jewish assaults. And it is about going past those stereotypes. I mean, that's what our data shows. Most, a lot of Americans believe the conspiracy theories that they read on social media. They believe it. And there's no way to really push back against it because the fear that we're all living in today is the fear of the other. And no matter what the other is, whether it's both marginalized communities, one on the other, and we become more inward turning, we become more isolated, and that's when the hate mongers win. Mm -hmm. They want to divide us, they want to isolate us, so we don't work together. Yeah. So we don't pass hate crime legislation. So we don't have our um, legislators really acting on protecting the communities that really are the marginalized communities. You know, and I, I, th I think I, I go back again to the 1619 Project of resetting the, the understanding of the origins of the country. But if you were to really reset 
our understanding, you'd have to talk about Chinese Americans mm -hmm. and the exclusion mm -hmm. of this group that people wanted to come in to work, but not to stay and not to become Americans. Or you want to talk about downtown where it was Jewish people and black people who were thrown together downtown. And now when you start to gentrify downtown, it is black people who are being evicted. And these groups are now being set against each other. There's so much intersectionality in it. And I wonder, as a professor now, as you're at Howard University, as you're talking about these issues of the black struggle, how do we incorporate that wider story so that we are telling a coherent story across all of these groups and coalition building? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the problem is we're all taught this history so poorly. So it's not just that white Americans aren't learning the history, but none of us are really learning the history. So one of the things we talk about in my class are how actually it was, it was Chinese immigrants and black Americans uh, who were considered the two groups who could not be assimilated. Mm -hmm. And so before the Chinese Exclusion Act and then after the act, um, often you would see black and Chinese people being written out of their rights in the law. And in fact, the one group who didn't achieve citizenship under the 14th Amendment were Asian Americans and they would have to sue again. But then uh, a very early school desegregation case in Mississippi was a Chinese family suing not to have to put their kids in the black school. They weren't suing to end segregation, they were suing to be counted as white. So us not learning these histories, I mean, we do have these suspicions of each other. And I always tell my students, who does the narrative serve? Right? Who does the narrative benefit? And when you question that, then you begin to realize that there are powerful interests that don't want us to understand that history, that don't want us to understand our common struggle. And so we're over here fighting for crumbs and respect uh, while the hierarchy is maintained and stays in place. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious how you think about, about this in terms of. In terms of identity, right? Yeah. Because I mean, one of the things we're dealing with all the time is like many of these identities are both, you know, created and real, right? So Asian American, right? Like there's yes. people from the Philippines and from right. Indonesia. There are people from Korea and Japan and China. It's like, it's not all the same place, right? right? But it's in the cauldron of American, often, often in the cauldron of American oppression that that identity is forged. That's right. How do you think about this identity, Asian American or API? this moment in what what this sort of persistent feeling of threat is doing to that as a political identity. Yes, I think that's a it's a complex identity because like you said, it is a mix of so many different ethnicity, different groups that are fighting against essentially white supremacy. And uh, you know, up until 1960s, we were known as the Orientals. And that's very recent. Right? So this collective identity of this political identity of Asian American really emerged recently. And I think we're still figuring out how to build coalition within our communities, right? Where, you know, so much of this conversation could be around East Asian struggles versus really looking at so many different types of Asian people, Southeast Asian people, and also even the under the category of Asian struggles, you know, are we talking about people who've been previously incarcerated? Are we talking about sex? workers? Are we talking about undocumented people? Because these are all people who are yeah. part of the narrative who are not being visibilized. And I think also when we're talking about building coalition, we still suffer so much from the remnants of the political acts that have happened to serve, to position Asian people as the wedge within the people of color communities, right? Where we, when we go back to history and examine the, the origin of the model minority myth being a political weapon 
slogan that was created by white conservatives to position us as better minorities compared to people who are marching on the front lines during the civil rights era, who are predominantly black Americans. So really, the, the fundamental uh, nature of the model minority myth is resting on anti-black racism. And so I think that's a really important detail that we need to be addressing and educating all communities around how often this tactic gets used to divide us when the common enemy for us is the root of white supremacy. Yeah, to, to Nicole's point too, like the, the degree to which this history is just unknown. Like if you tell someone about immigration debates now, you say the first immigration law this country passed was called the Chinese Exclusion Act and basically said anyone could come but Chinese folks. Well, people don't know that. They don't know They're that. talking about like, oh, we have open borders. Like, yeah, we had open borders for a hundred years. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Sharon Nazarian from the ADL, Michelle Mizun Kim, CEO of Awaken. Thank you both. It's wonderful to have you here. I ask Nicole if you'll stick with us. All right, and when we come back right here to Studio B in New Orleans, we're going to be joined by a woman who has spent her life fighting for civil rights. Minnie Jean Brown Tricky was one of the nine high school students who integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957. And she is going to join us next. But first, first, we want to check in with our friend Tremaine Lee. Tremaine? On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Thank you so much, Joy. Thank you so much. I'm here with uh, Chief Laura Ann Chazon, the principal chief of the United Homa Nation, uh, one of the indigenous people who call what is present-day Louisiana home. I want to ask you, um, Native people have experienced a unique kind of wounding in this country. And I wonder for you in that context, what is racial healing? It's to be able to acknowledge our contribution to our country and also to understand uh, uh, all the damage that has been done to our tribal people in Indian country. And not only that, but to start having conversation, hard conversations. You know, we're here in New Orleans and it's beautiful, my favorite city and I'm, I'm here. But to be able to start having that conversation about Andrew Jackson's statue, you know, that has done so much harm to our people. And even the Mardi Gras Indians, you know, the misappropriation there because it's not our people, you know. And so those are conversations that's not being said here in the city. And our people, I'll speak for our Homa people, we built the French quarter, uh, the French uh, market, and 99% of the people don't even know that in this city. And Congo Square, where we're at, you know, in New Orleans, 
that was some of our ceremonial grounds. We had green corn ceremony, but most of the people don't know that. And so it's to have those hard conversations about our people here and in this country. I mean, this is our land, but people talk to us like it's we're a pass. And in the school system, there's only 27 states in the United States that actually teaches native history. And out of the 27 states, 89% do not teach tribal um, to the 1900s, prior to 1900s. Before, I mean, after 1900s, sorry. But it's like, wait a minute, we're still here. We have a lot of tribes in the United States. And in Louisiana, you know, there's, there's five tribes that I've been working with for 30 something years. And so it's, it's important that um, we have these hard conversations because they're, they're very uh, difficult conversations here, especially here in the city of New Orleans. Difficult here. indeed. Uh, yes. Chief Shazan, thank you very much. You. We'll be right back. that I am only as free as the person sitting next to me. So we should all come together because our freedoms are all intricately bound up in one another's. Welcome back to Studio B in New Orleans. Behind me, you can see a painting by Brandon B. Mike Odoms called My Little Generation. It shows a present day New Orleanian confronting an artifact from the past when segregation was a rule from water fountains to schoolhouses. On their first day at the new school, Minnie Jean Brown and eight other black kids found an angry mob and the National Guard blocking the schoolhouse door. It was 1957 in Little Rock, Arkansas. The teenagers were trying to integrate Little Rock Central High School. They tried three different times over the course of a month. General Walker, commander of the division, was asked to delay the entrance of the Negroes for a day to let things cool off. But General Walker decided, no, this had to be done. Finally, backed by 1,200 soldiers, they made it inside for their first full day of class. Minnie Jean and her friends were known as the Little Rock Nine, and we remember them today as heroes. At the time, they were just kids trying to learn amid a torrent of abuse. White students called them names, spat on them, hurled hot food at them, even sprayed them with acid. One day, a white girl hit Minnie Jean in the head with a purse, and Minnie Jean responded by calling her white trash. For this one misstep, the school expelled Minnie Jean. White students passed notes that read, quote, one down, eight to go. Minnie Jean Brown, now Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, would end up finishing her education far from home in New York City. She had spent a lifetime thinking about racial healing for the country and for what she herself endured in trying to push the country forward. We were ordinary teenagers and we were interested in changing something. And we believed that we could. Thank you. It's so great to have you here. Seriously, it's amazing to have you here. Absolutely. 
Um, we also have Pulitzer Prize winning Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the creator of the 1619 Project, who has stuck around. Um, the term racial healing can feel abstract, I think, to some, but in your case, you were 14 years old undergoing just tremendous um, trauma. What has it meant for you just in your life? I think it's meant that I, I didn't want any other kids, no matter who they were, no matter what color, any, to, that to happen again. And I think that's what I've done as much as I could with my life. I teach nonviolence. I interact with kids as often as I can. I have great conversations uh, in different parts of the world as well as the U.S., but I just, just wanted to pick up on your last session and say, what is it that everybody thinks that this stuff is new? Mm -hmm. This is not new. Uh, Japanese incarceration, of course, you talk Chinese exclusion, indigenous genocide, uh, just the whole hatred. Uh, I keep hearing people talk about death threats. Huh. Really? Death threats? <laughs> Constant. Um, that's the, 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 the game to try to scare people out of whatever it is they're doing. And I, I have a story about my three-year-old brother answering the phone and somebody saying, we're going to come burn your house down, we're going to kill you and all that. And I thought, ultimate depravity to do that to a child. But that's the nature of kind of evil. Um, Bonhoeffer, who was a Holocaust victim, says, to speak is to act, not to speak is to act. So, you know, we have this whole concept of people standing by and doing nothing, which is also... Uh, but anyway, so that's where I am. It's not new... It breaks my heart, as it breaks the hearts of many of us. Um, and I'll do what I can. And so much of this beautiful space, yeah. these people here, you two, this woman. I mean, we're changing it, whether they like it or not. <laughs> right? And that is your legacy. the bravery that you had to show as a teenager just to go to school. And I do wonder what your mom said to you uh, as you were tucking your books underneath and heading into that hostile environment where moms were screaming at you, where people's moms were yelling, cursing at you. Um, what did she say to you to prepare you for that? What, did, what was the thing she said before you set off? Uh, it pretty is, it's pretty does. You're smart, you're talented, and they're just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to bring you into this, Nicole, because the thing that you two have in common um, is that you've both been on the receiving end of rage for doing something that's very simple, right? Sort of asking people to, or trying to learn, or asking people to learn. Hmm. And that seems like such an elementary thing to, to do. But the hate has been unreal. I think both of you experienced it. And I just wonder how Miss Minnie Jean's story falls with you. Um, I feel very emotional. I, I, I have studied uh, your photos, 
um, your heroism. I know you don't like when people talk about your courage, but um, on my worst day, I don't understand what you went through and so many people in the movement. So I don't even feel like it's justified to give any comparison at all um, to anything that, I, that I've gone through. And I always reminded myself of that, right? Whenever I want to feel bad because something has happened, um, I think about, you know, my grandmother was born on a cotton plantation. And I think about people like uh, Miss Minnie Jean, who, to be clear, right, we, we want this to be so far in the rear view mirror. We want to act like that was so long ago. Why don't we get over it? Um, nobody wants to get over this more than black people. <laughs> right. Amen. Right. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So when I think about, about healing, I think who really needs to heal are white people. I think that the idea, you know, yes, we... We have gone through a lot. We have experienced a lot of trauma. We are still being harmed. But the people who cause the harm are the people who need to do the healing, the reflection, the fixing, right? And um, because really, if, if we were just left alone, we'd be healed by now. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. I just, yeah, I, I, I'm so, I'm grateful um, to just be, to be in your presence and to be able to tell you out of my own mouth what everything that you did has meant um, for someone like Joy and myself to even be in a yeah. room like this having these conversations. Yeah. So I'm just well, thank you. honored. Thank you. Okay, so uh, activism is a life sentence. And <laughs> I love that. Really, because there's always something. Um, there's the environment, there's, there's, I'm an envi arrested environmentalist. I've gone to jail because I see all of this as related and it is about power. Now, one of the things, uh, for instance, Little Rock Story usually has one page in American history books mm -hmm. for young people. Mm -hmm. What a denial of our children because it's so complex that they could learn all yes. about courts they could learn about mob violence. They could learn about persistence of the human spirit. Uh, just they could learn about journalism, actually. And yet we deny our children truth. And they love truth. They desire truth. Yeah. So, so we have an obligation to give them truth and give them complexity. So this is how I see what I said earlier tonight, the 1619 Project took something that usually took a page. That's right. When the Daughters of the Confederacy said it in my history book at Central High School, they said slavery was good for black people and the masters were kind. Mm. So she took something and showed the complexity and the resonance and how it keeps reverberating and how we keep seeing it happening. And so... That's the beauty of that to me, is to bring complexity to things in honor of our children who want to know more mm. than you do. I, I, almost, <laughs> I almost can't deal with old people. Okay. <laughs> We love you. Uh, well, and I have to say that when I look at those pictures, 
Um, what I want to ask is the white women and men who are screaming, what is it that you think you're losing? Mm -hmm. Right? Because the, the, I think one of the reasons people are afraid to confront this history and give it more than a page is that they might have to ask grandma. Yes. Or might have to ask grandpa, what did you think you were going to lose if Minnie Jean sat in a class with your child? And that's the question we don't ask when we talk about history. We actually have people of color all having this conversation, yep. right? Among one, one another. And we want it to be done. But we're the only ones talking about it. So we have to start asking those questions outside of our own group. Well, I want to thank you very much. Um, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, civil rights activist. Um, and ooh, let me go over here. A member of the Little Rock Nine and Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize winning. I love saying that. Journalist and the creator of the 1619 Project. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you both. Your time, your work, your wisdom. Thank you both. God bless you. It's one of the oldest black neighborhoods in America, and I'd be willing to bet that almost everything you love about New Orleans started right here. For a very long time, this was a prosperous community. At the heart of it, Claiborne Avenue, lined with big old oak trees and black businesses. This was a whole community until this interstate went up in the 1960s and everything changed. Lifelong New Orleans resident Fred Johnson compares what happened in Treme in 1966 to the attack that leveled Tulsa's Black Wall Street in 1921. The only difference is they didn't bomb it with bombs. They bombed it with cement. Fred says a whole gumbo of things contributed to Treme's decline, but the freeway is the most visible. What do you call this? The cement monstrosity. In post-World War II America, as urban planners looked for ways to expand cities into suburbs, many so-called urban renewal projects intentionally targeted neighborhoods of color like Treme. The reason it came that way, because the people were powerless. Decades later, there's an effort to right the wrongs of the past with an eye toward healing. Neighborhood folks have been meeting in workshops known as charrettes, coming up with ways to help the neighborhood recover from the old decision to build a highway here. America, and New Orleans in particular, has a habit of just ignoring the African-American community. And we need to turn a page on that, you know, or else you'll be back in this situation again with another issue. Proposals to reconnect Treme include everything from tearing down the freeway to infrastructure improvements like new lighting, removing ramps, and reinvesting federal grant money into the community. That's my mom. Don't play with it. Take a picture of that right there. That's my mom. Once my mom passed, she ain't always had my back. This is why you're trying to hold on to this neighborhood so much. Cause my, that's right. Because right, of my family. Sue Press's grandmother was born in Treme in 1890. Her mother was born here in 1932. She was in grade school when highway construction began in 1966. People back then didn't have politicians or didn't have that clout to fight for more. I'm not saying our people didn't fight. Yeah, I believe they fought. You know, I believe they didn't want things to happen. But during them days, come on. She worries if the freeway is torn down, 
families like hers will be pushed out of the already gentrifying neighborhood. But let the people that lives in this community, that want to stay in this community, leave us have some part of something. Activist Amy Stelly is pitching a plan that could include tearing down the freeway and redeveloping spaces where huge cement pylons now stand. Why do you think this interstate should be torn down? Because it doesn't do any good for the community. It is a serious, serious quagmire. You ain't going to be able to fix all that you tore up. You can't, you, you, you can't, once you tear something up, it is Humpty Dumpty. You, you can't put it back together again. How do you put a community back together again? Jermaine Lee has been here in New Orleans reporting that story. And he joins us now, along with Mitch Landrieu, the former mayor of New Orleans, who now works with the Biden administration as a senior advisor on infrastructure spending. Mayor Landrieu is the author of In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. Also with us, Asali Devon Ecclesiastes, one of the coolest names you're going to get, who worked on the Claiborne Corridor as a program manager in the Landrieu administration and now as chief equity officer for the Ashe Cultural Arts Center. Mayor Landrieu, uh, we're going to start with you. Thank you. Give them all a round of applause. Give them their honor. Uh, I'm going to put you in the hot seat, Mr. Mayor, because this is the challenge. You tear down a highway, and whether it's here or in Overtown in Miami or in Five Points in Denver, same story, right? The highways came in, black communities got displaced. And now you have a community that's there, you tear down the highway, you impact them in one negative way. So you can't necessarily do that. You do the improvements, gentrification, suddenly it's attractive to the rich folks, and suddenly people are displaced. What do you do? Well, first of all, I'm B. Mike, thank you for having us here. And it's great to be with so many people, especially the descendants of, of uh, Homer Plessy and John Ferguson. So thank you so much for, for having us with you. Um, you know, we face this in, in New Orleans. And as you, as you just mentioned, this problem is crisscrossed across the nation, whether you're talking about Miami, whether you're talking about Tulsa, whether you're in Detroit, whether you're in the Bronx, whether you, I mean, anywhere that you go, you have this same problem because there was a design to actually separate neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And the consequence of that design is what we're facing today and the dilemma that Asali was working on when I became mayor. It was one of the first things we did. We asked for a grant to try to study the problem because somebody said to me, hey man, before you tear that thing down, you might want to go ask everybody what they think. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was a pretty good idea. And so I think we got $2.7 million and Asali led the effort on behalf of actually lots of people in this room to go ask the folks in the community what they thought. And you know, I think that, you know, you could testify to this more than I can, but I think we were a little bit surprised that there was some level of ambivalence about, yeah, what happened, and Fred talked about this a minute ago, what happened was a travesty, but now what you're about to do may actually add to it, so how are we going to work through that problem? And the answer is you have to be intentional about it. You have to ask people about it. You have to think about constructively how you get from where we are to where folks need to be with the resources that you have right now. And we went through a fairly significant study that I'll, that I'll you know, con- concede to you to talk about, but it is a real challenge all across the country yep. to ask the people in that community, what do you want to do now to repair the damage that was done? Sally, I'd love to hear about that process, particularly because when people say the community, it's a singular word, but 
people got different opinions, right? Like, so that's, that's where it gets yeah. tricky. People have different opinions, but um, what we did learn through our process is that there's a way to reach broad consensus, right? You're never going to get everybody to agree. But when you present people with the data, the information, and first of all, you allow people, particularly when we're talking about the harm of interstates, not just in New Orleans, but throughout the country, as you mentioned, this was a design to put interstates through prosperous black um, and people of color business districts, right, um, and poor neighborhoods. That that was the basis of the design. Um, and you can read all about it, right? Um, but if you're not coming at those places with the same energy, if you're not coming to people with the same energy, when we started this process, one time, the mayor doesn't even know this, but I was sitting outside of his office, and I heard him and some of the communications folks talking about, how many more community meetings do we need on this project? Like, this is the most community, you know, um, meeting project we've ever done in the history of New Orleans and it's because we kept listening so the first time you know we had a series of like four or five meetings and the community said no you need to talk specifically to artists you need to talk specifically to elders you need to talk specifically to young people and we did that so you know you have to keep listening it's not a one-time thing it's perpetual and well and Tremaine then there's always the question of the money because mm-hmm. I think what winds up happening and you can chime in on this as well uh, Mr. Mayor is that the money comes in, the Biden bucks start coming, the infrastructure money starts coming, you start doing the redevelopment, and you look around the construction site, and there's no one who looks like That's right. the That's three right. of us, right? That you're not seeing the money. The people who are actually doing the redevelopment That's right. are not black. Right. They're not from yeah. the community. So that's another challenge. And I wonder when you talk to folks, you know, is there the wherewithal in the community or the development beginning to make sure that the contracts can actually go to people related to the community that's being redeveloped? When you talk to the community, there certainly is the wherewithal, right? Folks aren't uh, naive or numb or dumb. They understand the forces at play. And I was here after Katrina, and I remember reading a quote in the newspaper that said, Katrina did what no other force could. It got black people out of the city. Mm-hmm. And so the real concern right, is that right. money comes back, those same forces that made sure that highway project was rammed through the black community so other communities could exploit and extract mm-hmm. the resource and get them from the cities to the suburbs, but also take advantage of undermining that entire community, the strength of that community. And so certainly there is a concern. Um, but I think one thing is interesting. We talk about there is no real consensus. Some folks say tear down because it is a symbol of white supremacist violence, an abstract form of violence, infrastructural racism that they have to live with. You know, talking to folks who were around when uh, Claiborne Avenue was lined with big old oak trees and black businesses and communities and kids playing and lovers holding hands. And now it's concrete and debris and darkness and crime, right? And so how do you put a, a community back together again when you know those same forces still exist where when that money comes, you know, 99.9% of the chances it's not going to black folks. Well, one of, the, one of the things that is happening right now, this is the first time this has happened in 50 years, $1.2 trillion has been laid on the table to rebuild roads and bridges and airports and ports and waterways. And this is the first time President Biden's bill actually does this. $4 billion is dedicated to projects that reconnect communities that are very similar to the one that's being proposed in Treme. But you see this all over. And there is very significant intention to make sure that Justice 40 piece of this, that 40% of the benefits are in neighborhoods of color. And when this money gets 
gets to the ground, 90% of it is going to be spent by governors and mayors. The, the level of, of intensity that has to be placed on them to make sure that money stays in the community, with people in the community, to make sure folks that look like or, or in the community or working on the project is really critically important. Well, then you need a solid right governor. Yeah. Uh, then you need the right true. governor, but also you need clawbacks, you need things built. So whenever the government does something, they make sure that there's all the economic analysis, right? So make sure that everything around money is tight and that it can't happen if the money ain't right. Well, if it hurt black people, it yeah. shouldn't happen either. There should be an analysis yeah. that says if it hurts us. And, and, and while we're super excited about those trillions, we know that it takes 600 million just to take the interstate here down. Yeah. And, and that's just to take it down. And so our people are like, you're going to spend 600 million on that when we sitting down here that's, poor underneath the interstate? <laughs> That, those are hard spending decisions to justify. Asali Devon, Ecclesiastes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Jermaine Lee, thank you for that great report. Jermaine has more on Jermaine and the Cleveland Forum on his podcast, Into America. Our Mayor Landro, we've got some questions ahead for you. Please stay with us and we'll be right back. As our audience arrived tonight, we asked them to give uh, their thoughts on what racial healing means. I'm going to read just a couple. Racial healing means justice and reparations. It means first admitting there is still racism, that racism is still alive and well. And this one is a good one. Racial healing is true reconciliation and action, action exposing the awfulness and the abuse with the goal of doing the hard work of repair. Jermaine, thank you for that. Um, there's a lot of ways to foster healing. The first step is always accepting that there is work to do. Now, one way to start that work is through a healing circle, a powerful, safe space in order to promote healing within a community. It's about getting to know your neighbors, asking questions, maybe even changing your mind. And joining us now is Lejeune Montgomery Tebron, who is the president of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, which is our sponsor tonight and which created the National Day of Racial Healing in 2017. We also have Hector Sanchez Flores, racial healing facilitator, executive director of Natural Compadres Network, and back with us, former New Orleans mayor, Mitch Landrieu. Um, Lejeune, let's, let's start with you for people that are not familiar with uh, the work the foundation has done on racial healing. What's your sort of intro top line to, to what that work is, what it looks like? It's all about improving the lives of the most vulnerable children, but we know that children live within the context of their families. Families must support them. Communities must be equitable places for families to live and thrive. So our work is all about improving the lives of children and structural racism impairs the ability for children and families to thrive. Well, I, I am curious, Hector. I would love for you to explain to me what a healing circle is, what does it look like, and you've conducted them. What happens in a healing circle? Well, first, we come to recognize the layers that sit within us that we have to consider uh, reflecting on and undoing. What things have we learned along this process? And a healing circle creates a safe space that we learn from our ancestors. We're here because of the sacrifices that they made and how they contributed to our presence today here. And one of the things that they left for us was this tradition of gathering, seeing one another, beginning to understand 
how I position myself in, in the conversations that we are in proximity to whiteness and what do I have to do in order to reflect and uncover how I'm complicit and what can I do to transform that complicity so that we can grow and heal together. Do, what, I mean, in these circles, I mean, do people, does it ever turn into an argument? Like, are people no, allowed no. to sort of give their sort of un-PC um, un thoughts about how they might so, be feeling about cultural change, et cetera? And so different, different communities have different facility of language. And today we were talking about our communities in the Latinx community that hasn't developed the facility of language. So yes, there may be instances where things are said that for those of us that are more proficient, because we this is a space that we work in, that we have to have grace and forgiveness. As I would want grace and forgiveness when my thoughts take me to a place where others will say, Hector has some work to do. But that safety of first recognizing who we are, Joy. Who am I? Who do I come from? Who do I belong to? What things did I inherit that were painful? What gifts do I carry? And how do I transform that for the benefit of others? That's in essence what happens through targeted questioning and reflective practice. And these are relatively small gatherings of people. Um, how do you think about scaling something like that or scaling conversations like that like you went through when you were mayor here uh, around some of the Confederate models? Well, we actually did it with, with the help of, of Lejeune and Kellogg. And, uh, and to Hannah's comments earlier, you know, when you think about folks just thinking this was so long ago. So many Jean's sitting there saying, well, I was just a little girl not too long ago. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at the descendants of Plessy versus Ferguson. They're right there. And, and it happened less than 300 yards from here. So when people say it was a long time ago, it was like today. And so we have a lot of work still to do, number one. Number two, it seems to me, we started thinking about this work. I, I kept thinking about what is it about America that, that, that is stopping us from doing in many ways what they did in Germany or maybe in South Africa and the truth and reconciliation thing. But you can't really have reconciliation without truth. Now, this was in 2010 before we had 2016. So when we started this, I asked Lejeune and, and the way you went to Institute of Racial Reconciliation, like, how do you actually do this? What do you do? And they say, well, you know, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You got to go through it. And going through it means talking about it. Talking about it means confronting it. And basically, we came to kind of figure out like the six most important words in the English language. I'm sorry. And then I forgive you. But it's kind of hard to say I forgive you if someone says I'm sorry. And they won't say I'm sorry if they don't acknowledge right. the right. truth of what it is that happened. Yeah. So we had to work through that. We did this welcome table exercise with Kellogg's financial support. We had, I think we had 20 or 30 circles of 20 or so people of different races, creeds, and colors. And they met continually over a long period of time and began to see each other, understand each other, listen to each other, talk to each other. And of course, everybody's humanity right. just manifests itself. And as we were saying aside, what are your gifts? What are the challenges that you have? But are you committed to working through it? In other words, do you really want to get to the other side right. so that we can have some reconciliation? And it's a little uh, bit harder. Well, I, I mean, well, I, we are out of time, but I, I, I do think it's important that we have white Americans in this conversation, yeah. right? Because the people who are feeling fearful about change, fearful about a future Correct. that is a multiracial democracy where everyone mm -hmm. has power and where everyone really is equal, it ain't people of color who are scared of that. <laughs> they yeah. want it. And so I think that these conversations need to continue and I think they need to be broadened to Yeah, and to so your point about how, how important this sort of iterative work is, right? That like you get somewhere, you start somewhere maybe psychological, social, but you end up somewhere concrete, which is like yeah. working on 
on what are we doing about the schools and what are we doing about exactly. the neighborhood Amen. things like that. Yes. Uh, Lejeune Montgomery Tebron of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, Hector Sanchez Flores of the National Compadres Network, and former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu. Thank you. Thank you all for being here with us. And that does it. That does it for us on this National Day of Racial Healing. Special thanks to Studio B, which is amazing, for hosting our town hall. Thanks to all of our fabulous guests for joining us uh, in wonderful New Orleans. Thank you, audience. And thank you to the Young Fellas Brass Band. Yes. Amen. Stephanie Rule for letting us have a few minutes of our time. Sorry, Stephanie. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.